Today we begin our series on the seven deadly sins. Sin is not a popular subject, and many already think the church is too judgmental, and sometimes every time you talk about sin, the feeling is we're just adding to that reputation. Many of us grew up in religious environments where guilt was used as a primary weapon to keep us in line, so any discussion on sin can be suffocating. For some of us, embracing and integrating the unconditional grace of Jesus Christ in our lives has been a major endeavor that any sermon on sin just brings back unwanted flashbacks, which cause us to run from religion. Yet, we know deep down that we serve a Lord who is put on the cross for telling the truth. Jesus got in trouble for calling the religious leaders of his day whitewashed tombs and even worse. Those, though, who want to experience the depth of our spiritual yearnings know that we need to face our failings that dilute the fullness of life God has for us. Will Willimon once asked a recovering alcoholic in his congregation, Sam, why have you stopped coming to church? And he replied, Preacher, after you've been to AA and you've taken the cure, you stared your demons in the face, and have to stand naked in front of 20 other drunks and tell every bad thing you have done or thought and had to ask God and them to forgive you for being you, well, church just seems like a trivial waste of time. Some have said church at its best is an AA program for sinners. And it's certainly part of our prophetic call to point out, to examine the sin that lies within each of us. And Lent is the appropriate time for us to face that important truth. On Ash Wednesday, although we didn't get to do that this year, we traditionally mark our foreheads with ashes and we use the words, from dust we came and to dust we shall return. It's a reminder of our mortality, of our sinfulness, to take a a realistic look and get a sense of who we are. But the purpose of Lent is not to talk about sin in order to generate this negative view of ourselves that will come crawling to the altar begging for God's forgiveness. Instead, the reason for talking honestly about the sin that resides within each of us is to name it, to claim it, and then to change it so we can move into the significant lives that God wants to make possible for us through the grace of of the life of Jesus Christ. So we investigate sin. We stare it in the face. We admit its reality so we can be on our way to the fulfillment of God's great promise to God's people that we find in Leviticus chapter 19 that says, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So where did the idea of seven deadly sins come from? There is no list in the Bible that contains these seven sins. But they are pride, envy, wrath, gluttony, lust, sloth, and greed. They probably wouldn't make our own personal list of the most serious sins happening right now in our world. If you watch the headlines, we would list things like political oppression, ethnic hatred, concern for the unborn, religious persecution, and racial violence would trump each of these. 
And these seven don't seem that deadly to us. I mean, certainly murder and adultery, which are in the Bible frequently enough, you'd think they'd make this list, but they do not. Well, the earliest Christian formation of these seven deadly sins comes from a contemporary of Augustine, the great church father. This desert father was named Evagrius, came from Pontius, and he wrote in his epistle, Epractikos, who lived, he lived around 550 AD. He came from Egypt and established there a group of monks who went out into the desert to live in order to separate themselves from the wiles of the world and be closer to God. It was a noble endeavor. And it was within this communal, ascetic community designed to try to promote a better vision of God that Evagrius and his fellow monks discovered their own sin. And he identified actually eight of those. He added to this list that of sadness. Evagrius' community would eventually lead uh, to influence the more famous monastic rule of St. Benedict, which became a means of ordering the monastic life that we are familiar with in all the Western church of the Catholic Church. Well, when I was in college, I had a couple of high school buddies that while I was studying in college, they they became involved with a house church community. This house church community had a vision of creating the New Testament church in modern times. They tried to live in community by buying up homes in a decaying neighborhood of Indianapolis. They tried to live life in community. And as I watched this endeavor from a distance, I even actually attended some of their meetings along with my friends. But I I soon became concerned about their preaching of submitting to the authority of their elders It took about 10 years, but eventually this community, which also, like Evagrius, had this noble idea of creating this wonderful, idealistic way of living life according to God's way, eventually fell apart and became a shambles. They began to shun those who separated from the church, and it fell apart, mostly because of sins like those identified in this list. Well, Evagrius identified these seven sins. But the genius in them is not that they're so deadly, but that they are so human. They're so common to being human. They're the first step towards more obvious sin that leads us down a path that eventually will separate us from God. As Will Willimon says, they are so ordinary, so pervasive in human life with all the roots and basic from infancy human nature that we may fail to see how terribly they warp our humanity. Nearly all the seven look fairly harmless to us, but they so infiltrate our lives that we accept them as just part of being human. They then become the means that we attempt to secure our lives through the wrong means. They take the place of God. And God ceases to be our God. We settle for a life that falls so far short of what God has in mind for us. So how do we end up with seven? Well, primarily because they were written about mostly by St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas. They're the ones that made them famous. There could be eight, there could be 20, but seven's just such a biblical number, right? 
So I think that's how we arrived at seven finally. And these seven sins seem so trivial to those outside the faith. They appear to be much to do about nothing. But for those of us who take our spiritual lives seriously, we see the danger in each because we compare them to our knowledge of the life of Jesus Christ. Pride is a sin because Jesus, the Son of God, got on his knees and washed the disciples' feet. Envy is a sin because God is the source of all we have and all that we are. Gluttony is a sin because Jesus taught us to pray for no more than our daily bread. Sin is not so much a particular act of wrongdoing. It is not how we compare to others It is about not living up to the life that Jesus Christ has prepared for each one of us. So with that introduction to the entire series in mind, let's focus on the sin of pride. And when I thought about pride, the sin of pride, I could not help but consider how our society has tied this to the issue of self-esteem. For those of us who grew up in my generation, we are the products of parents who were born out of the Great Depression, who lived through World War II, and they adopted the values of sacrifice for the common good. They ingrained in us the Protestant work ethic. You are what you produce and achieve. Pride in your work was one of the highest values that we were taught. I don't know how your parents were, but mine were not very aware of their emotions. They rarely provided me with any affirmation. I had to learn to accept their love for me by their actions and not by their words. As I've told many people, my father never once told me that he loved me even when when he was asked point blank. I'd hear from others about dad bragging on me, but never from him directly. I always thought I had to earn my father's approval instead of feeling that it was there just by virtue of being his son. So given that upbringing, then in my generation, we kind of swung the pendulum the other way. We wanted to make sure that our children always knew they were loved no matter what. We were taught by parenting experts to differentiate their actions from their self-worth so that they would know that their love was unconditional, that our love was unconditional. Every conversation I even have today with my adult children over the phone always ends with us saying, love you to one another. For a while, in popular psychology and self-improvement books, it seemed that every evil in society could be explained by poor self-esteem. If we just somehow learn to instill good self-esteem in everyone at an early age, we'd eliminate the need for prisons and bring an end to broken families. Well, some now believe that we've gone too far. And that uh, the pendulum needs to swing back a little. You ever hear people talk about the participation trophy generation of kids that we've raised? How they were told they're great all the time by helicopter parents who won't let their children learn from the lessons that come from their failures? Well, I don't know which generation is right. Maybe it's somewhere in between. But I imagine we're going to continue to see that pendulum swing back and forth But it seems to me if we pay attention to Jesus and the biblical witness regarding the sin of pride, we might find that balance 
that helps us to raise emotionally healthy children and to find our proper place in God's creation. It's even kind of hard to talk about pride as a sin, isn't it? Today, pride is a good thing. We teach our kids to have pride in their work. It's part of instilling that sense of self-worth. I know even today I still experience a good feeling when I'm able to do something with my hands, especially around the house. Just a couple weeks ago, I helped Nancy put up new new curtains, and I had to lower that curtain rod. It's a nice feeling when I got it done, according to the, my and her satisfaction. Instilling pride is one of the ingredients for success in our world. We like being a part of a company that takes pride in its mission and the products they produce. If you talk to almost any management guru, they'll tell you one of the most important qualities to cultivate in your workers in a company is pride in their products. Today, pride is coined by movements. We talk about black pride. If you just Google pride, it's seen as one of the ways in which we advance the rights of LGBTQ people. Pride is a good thing in so many ways. It, it's hard to see why it makes this list, and especially why it's mentioned first. But pride is a real problem for us who claim to be Christian. Because the person we claim as our Lord and Savior took the opposite way in conducting his public ministry. If you read the story of Jesus' temptations in the wilderness, you realize that Jesus was in this battle with the evil one who was trying to convince them to claim that power and, and wear that crown. And each time Jesus rejected it. He chose not to abuse his power, but to rely and put his trust in his Father who would provide all of his needs. The Apostle Paul in our scripture that was read today shares that Christ-like approach. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider being equal with God something to exploit, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and by becoming like human beings. When he found himself in the form of a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus emptied himself and called us to have the same attitude. Jesus was not too proud to wash the disciples' feet. He was not too proud to eat with tax collectors and sinners. He was not too proud that he couldn't make time for children. Can we make the same claims? Paul suggests that this is how God will transform the world, not through our self-pride, but will change the hearts of people through our humility. That doesn't mean we go around putting ourselves down all the time. That's false humility. Instead, we have a quiet confidence that is found when we know our life is secure in God and that confidence empowers us to get on our knees and serve others because that is what our Lord did. You see, pride at its worst is an idolatry in which we become the object of worship. It fails to recognize that most of our accomplishments in life are not purely the work of our own hands. They've come to us because the gifts that God has given us when we were created or they've been cultivated by those that God has placed in our life who have mentored us. I don't know about you, but I have found in my life that God accomplishes the most when I've maintained a humble attitude. I'm able to bless others because I am a vessel that's used by God. 
But the minute I start thinking somehow I am deserving of whatever accolades that come from my accomplishments, that's when I start making mistakes. It's when my pride leads to an insensitivity, an arrogance that causes me to overlook the opportunities that God keeps placing in my lives to impact others if I'm dependent upon God. I believe Psalm 8 provides a wonderful model for us to keep the sin of pride in check. Its poetry provides a perfect balance for us to use in teaching our children both the humility and the esteem they need to live life. You'll see this passage if you read the faith first that's on our church website. I encourage you to memorize it as a family. It will serve you and your children well throughout your life. I would encourage you to read it today and listen to these key verses. I won't read it all. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your way throughout the earth. When I look up the skies at what your fingers made, the moon and the stars that you set firmly in place, what are human beings that you think about them? What are human beings that you pay attention to them? But you've made them only slightly less than divine, crowning them with glory and grandeur. You've let them rule over your handiwork, all sheep, cattle, wild animals, birds, and fish, everything. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name throughout the earth. Do you see the balance that provides? We're so small and insignificant in so many ways, and yet... We're made just a little lower than God. We are created in God's image. That provides a great balance. So this Lenten season, I hope that you'll go on this journey with us as we take a deeper look at ourselves and discover the sin that we have become so good at hiding from others and sometimes even ourselves. Let's start by placing our pride first in God which will help us find our proper place in God's creation. Let us pray. Lord, we lift up all those who struggle finding that balance in their lives. With those of us who've struggled to find that affirming self-esteem that empowers us, but at the same time, we pray for those who've allowed their arrogance to get in the way of your working hand in their lives. Help us to find that balance. Know that we're special because of you who have created us. And help us live into that so we can take those gifts and put them to work for the benefit of others. We know that when we humble ourselves, we empower you to do even greater things in our life. That is our prayer and hope on this day. Through Christ we do pray. Amen.